Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 30. 2 Chronicles chapter 30. And we met or began to look at Hezekiah uh, last week in chapter 29. And here in chapter 30, he does another great thing. Let's begin with chapter 30, verse 1. And it reads, And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah, and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. What Hezekiah does now in chapter 30, he restores the Passover. In chapter 29, he cleansed the temple and he restored worship. And so here in chapter 30, he does another great thing. He restores the Passover. He ordered the Passover to be restored and observed, which hadn't been done for many years. The reason being his father, his wicked father Ahaz, had gone to war against the northern kingdom, and a lot of the people from Judah had been taken prisoner. So the Passover celebration now was a reminder of the time when God spared the lives of Israel's first sons, firstborn sons in Egypt. God had promised to send a plague to kill all the firstborn sons, uh, except in those particular homes where the blood of the lamb had been smeared on the doorposts of that house. The Israelites obeyed. And when the destroyer saw the blood on the doorpost, he passed over, thus the Passover, he passed over that house and he didn't touch anyone in it. And after this plague, Pharaoh freed the Israelites from slavery. The celebration was to be a yearly reminder, a yearly celebration of how God delivered his people. The careful preparations, both in the temple and for the feast, show that this was not a temporary or impulsive revival, but it was a deep-seated change of heart and life. Now, you might think that when Hezekiah became king, he would have wanted to get even having hard feelings in his heart and wanting to get revenge over what had transpired before he took the throne. But instead, after he opened up the temple of God and restored the worship of God and giving his own testimony to everybody, he sends an invitation to the northern kingdom to come and worship God. So he showed a wonderful and merciful spirit here. Look at verses 2 and 3 now. For the king and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month because they could not keep it at the regular time because a sufficient number of priests um, had not consecrated themselves nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem. Now God's law had a certain stipulation in it that said... Under, circum, uh, under certain circumstances, the Passover could be celebrated one month later than usual. And even though the invitation that Hezekiah sent to the northern kingdom was rejected and ridiculed by some of the people, many of them responded favorably, and they came to Jerusalem to keep the Passover with their brothers. Verses 4 through 9. And the matter pleased the king and all the assembly. So they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba to Dan, that they should come to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem, since they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. Then the runners went throughout all Israel and Judah with the letters from the king and his leaders and spoke according to the command of the king. 
Children of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Then he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. And do not be like your fathers and your brethren who trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers so that he gave them up to desolation as you see. Now, do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who led them captive, so that they may come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. So Hezekiah was a king that was sold out to God. He was committed to God. And he was committed to the spiritual growth of the nation. So what does he do? He sends letters all throughout the land of Judah and Israel urging everybody to return to the Lord. He told them in verse 8, don't be stiff-necked like your fathers or, or don't be stubborn. He said, yield yourselves to the Lord. And the word yield means to obey him first, yielding our bodies, minds, wills, and emotions to him. His Holy Spirit has to be the one who guides and renews every part of us. Because only then will we be able to lessen our stubborn selfishness. Verse 10. So the runners passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun. But they laughed at them and mocked them. So the northern kingdom of Israel had recently been conquered by Assyria. And most of the people had been carried off to foreign lands. So Hezekiah sends messengers all throughout the land with this message that call the people to repent. He says, in return to the Lord, come to Jerusalem and take part in the Passover with us. Notice the behavior of the messengers. It says they passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, even to Zebulun. Hezekiah sent the messengers way past Judah. They were sent through the land that used to be the northern, uh, that used to be the uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, which was made up of the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, Zebulun, and others. The point is, the runners or the messengers had to have a lot of courage to take this message to the people about returning to the Lord and about partaking in the Passover. Because you see, these lands were filled with idolatrous people. And they had a history of being really cruel to God's messengers. You see, if you serve God, you're going to need courage. Because your ministry is in and to a sinful world that's often very hostile towards God. And again, we're seeing it more and more every day. Notice the work of the runners. It says the messengers passed from city to city. They didn't go by horseback. They didn't go by donkey. They went on foot. So the messenger's ministry required a lot of hard and tiring work. They had to walk many miles to deliver the king's message. But they were faithful in doing what the king asked them to do. It's a good picture of our king when he asks us to do something, to be faithful in doing it. They were faithful to their assignment. And if you serve the Lord, you will quickly earn that faithfulness to your calling will require a lot of hard work. It is not easy serving the Lord. Jeremiah 12, 5, 6. Jeremiah 
was having difficulties. God says, if you have run with the footmen, Jeremiah, and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted, they wearied you, then how will you do in the, in the floodplain of the Jordan? For even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Yes, they have called a multitude after you. Do not believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you. What God was telling Jeremiah in these verses was the godly life of, of service. It's not easy. It's like running a race. Paul used this similar figure in Philippians 3, 12 through 14. If Jeremiah had remained a priest, hey, he probably would have had a, a more easy life, a more comfortable and secure life. But the life of a prophet was just the opposite. He was like a man running a race and he was having a hard time keeping up. Secondly, the life of service becomes harder. Serving God can be, it becomes harder, not easier. Jeremiah had been running with the foot soldiers and he kept up with them. But now he, he, was, he was racing with the horses. And in spite of his trials, he'd been living in a land of peace. But now he'd be tackling the thick jungles of the Jordan River where the wild beasts prowled. His heart had been broken because of the attacks of outsiders. But now his own family was going to start opposing him. Notice the people's response to the messengers. It says they laughed at them and mocked them. The way the messengers were treated by some of the people was mostly unfriendly. And even though their ministry was for a very good cause, many of the people could have cared less. They didn't care. And they ridiculed the messengers. And the point is, if you serve God, you will often find out that even, what, even if what you're doing is good, a good cause, you're going to be, you might be get mistreated. The thing is, is you don't quit. You don't weary in well-doing. You keep going just like the messengers did. When God called Isaiah to the ministry in Isaiah 6, 8 through 10, Isaiah responded to the call of God. The Lord said, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah responded, here I am, Lord, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? In other words, God did not promise Isaiah an easy time. He didn't promise Isaiah an easy ministry. The Lord didn't give uh, Isaiah a lot of encouragement. I, Isaiah's ministry would actually make some people's eyes even more blind. It would even make them more deaf and their hearts more hard, hardened. Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 through 10 are so important that they're quoted six times in the New Testament. Now God doesn't deliberately make sinners blind or deaf. And he doesn't deliberately harden her heart. But here's the thing. The more that people resist God's truth, the less able they are to receive God's truth and the harder their heart gets. Just like the Pharaoh. Every time he hardened his heart, he became harder and harder and harder in his position. But the servant of God is to proclaim the word of God no matter what. No matter how the people respond. Because you see, the test of ministry is not the outward success, but their, fail, their faithfulness to do what the Lord has told them to do. 
1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5, Paul said, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He said, Moreover, notice, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. Notice what was required? Faithfulness. It didn't say that it's required of God's servants to be brilliant, educated, smart, all the things that we think go along, which are not wrong. But the thing that we're all going to be held accountable for on the day of judgment, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, is was I faithful in the ministry that I was given? Whether it was a, a homemaker or, or, you know, an employee or whatever it might have been. It says, Paul said, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Because I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. For he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. Something that a lot of Christians do is evaluate leaders, pastors and leaders with all kinds of different standards that are used to determine who are the most successful? Who are the most influential, the most gifted, and the most effective? And you know, a lot of articles are written every once in a while, and, and surveys are taken, and, and long write-ups are written, uh, ranking uh, pastors uh, based on, on church membership, how many people go to their church, the size of their staff, what kind of degrees they have, or, you know, how many books they've written, are they on radio and TV? And it's a popular practice. But you know what? As popular as that practice is, it is offensive to God. God isn't out to make celebrities. He's out to make faithful servants of God. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5 that I just read. Focus on the true nature and marks of God's ministers. It lays out the basic guidelines and standards that ministers are to minister and be evaluated by. It deals with the congregation's attitude towards the ministry. Uh, what, what, towards the ministry, what it should be, and what the minister's attitude toward himself should be. In short, it puts the minister of God in God's perspective. Paul makes it clear in those verses that popularity, personality, degrees, and numbers don't play any role in what the Lord looks at, and that they shouldn't play those 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 uh, statistics or those that criteria shouldn't play any role. In ours, the message is that the servants of God should be not be ranked at all by others or by themselves, because all who are true to Scripture in their preaching and living should be treated equally. Where there's sound doctrine and personal holiness, there is no justification for ranking God's servants. But Romans sixteen seventeen and First Timothy five twenty point out that there were two basic things that were missing. And if they are, then, then their evaluation must be looked at, and then there must be confrontation if those things are missing. The responsibility of the steward is to be faithful to his master. A steward may not please the members of his household. He might not even please some of the other servants. But if he pleases his own master, he's a good steward. And again, that's what we're to be looking at. God told Isaiah that his ministry would end in what seemed like failure. The land would be ruined. The people would be taken off to exile. But a remnant would survive and they would continue the true faith in the land. 
Isaiah needed to look beyond the difficulties, beyond the trials. He had to see past them, and, 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 or else his ministry would feel like he wasn't accomplishing anything. So here, the mockery of the messengers, you know, they didn't disgrace the messengers. But their mockery disgraced the ones that were doing the mockery. The mockers were the ones to be disgraced. And the messengers found others who responded positively, positively to their message, as verse 11 tells us. Look at verse 11 now. Nevertheless, all right, in spite of those that mocked and laughed, nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Many times when we try to tell other people about Jesus, it often ends up with the same kind of reactions. A lot of people will laugh at us when we ask them, hey, do you want to accept Christ? But you know what? Don't ever let this stop you from reaching out to them. Know and understand that rejecting the gospel, man, that's a common thing. And, and so don't take it personally because they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, it's the Holy Spirit who, who's the one who convicts. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Our job is to, is to preach the gospel, to share, uh, uh, to, to, you know, to tell them about the good work of the Lord Christ. Our job is to invite others to consider what God has done through his word and his promises. Look at verse 12. Also, the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. God's hand, it says here, was on the people in Judah. And God gave them a strong desire to be united in obeying the king's word and his officials' orders who were following the word of God. Hezekiah commanded the men of Judah to go to this feast. They, they, they cooperated and they obeyed. They did what the king said. They, and they did it with one heart. They were single-minded. They were unified. They were all of one mind, and God gave them that one heart. And the scripture says it's God that works both to will and to do. And, and when people at any time show an unexpected willingness to do what's good, we have to recognize, hey, it was God's hand that was in it. Verses 13 through 27. Now many people, a very great assembly, gathered at Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month. They arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, and they took away all the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kidron. Then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the second month. The priests and the Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves and brought the burnt offerings to the house of the Lord. They stood in their place according to their custom, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priest sprinkled the blood received from the hand of the Levites. For there were many in the assembly who had not sanctified themselves. Therefore, the Levites had charge of the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to sanctify them to the Lord. For a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written, that is, contrary to what the law said. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary." And the Lord listened to Hezekiah, and he healed the people. 
So the children of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days, notice, with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing to the Lord, accompanied by loud instruments. And Hezekiah gave encouragement to all the Levites who taught the good knowledge of the Lord. And they ate throughout the feast seven days, offering peace offerings and making confession to the Lord God of their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days. And they kept it another seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep. And the leaders gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep. And a great number of priests sanctified themselves. The whole assembly of Judah rejoiced. Also the priests and Levites, all the assembly that came from Israel, the sojourners who came from the land of Israel, and those who dwelt in Judah. So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had not been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests, the Levites, arose, blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place to heaven." Notice, now here's the celebration of the congregation. Notice, it was large. It says in verse 13, there was many people, and it was a very great assembly that were celebrating. This was normal at the main festivals of the nation. But probably it was such a big gathering because of the king's invitation that he sent out all through Judah and beyond Judah. This feast normally started on the 15th day of the month as a part of the larger celebration of Passover. Manual labor, it was strictly forbidden. You couldn't do any work whatsoever. Strangers and those native-born people alike were punished if they failed to keep this day holy. It was a mixed congregation. The great assembly was made up of, it says, all the congregation of Judah. For example, of the inhabitants of the cities and countries or areas of Judea with the priests and the Levites. Also, the congregation that came out to Israel, it was a multitude of people from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulon, according to verse 18. And third, the strangers or proselytes who lived inside the borders of Judah and those who came from Israel uh, were part of this, this celebration, according to verse 25. We also see that they were united in their celebration. They were all united by one purpose. Verse 13 tells us, tells us, and what was that purpose? To keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a festival that could really only be celebrated by a truly united people. And only those celebrating could draw even closer to each other. It says they were a faithful multitude. They were prepared to do any work necessary to ensure that the feast was a success. And they determined that nothing or nobody would stop them from worshiping the Lord God of their fathers, verses 19 and 22. And it was a joyous multitude. Their feelings were all stirred up with, with the feelings of gladness, verse 23. And verse 21 says they, they, were, they were celebrating with great gladness. Verse 26 they were said they were celebrating with great joy. What neat things to be said about this body of, 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 you know, of God's people. There should be a great gladness and a great joy among God's people in the worship of God. And it was the result of their peace offerings and their confessions that they made to the Lord. That led to singing. Again, another demonstration of the joy and the peace that was in there. It led to their singing, which was accompanied by loud instruments. 
And it went on nonstop for seven days of the feast, verse 21 tells us. But the people said, hey, let's keep it going for another seven days. And verse 27 says, prayer was heard. It was an awesome revival taking place. But because of the people, they had turned back to the Lord. They they reinstituted the true worship of God. And there was no doubt that their enthusiasm, man, it was running full speed ahead. They became, and it was so, you know, so they were so full of joy and this glad rejoicing that they became so overjoyed that nothing they said like it had ever happened since the days of Solomon when they dedicated the temple. And, and even there they had a double, a double time of rejoicing. This occasion was their reason for great gladness. The reason, they ha- the nation had returned to God. And the heart of the people that returned to God in repentance, faith, and obedience is cause for do- joy, not just in heaven, but on earth as well. And not just among the spectators, but also in the hearts of those who had come back to the Lord. Not only that, the service of God and Christ should always be accompanied with gladness. Psalm 100 says to serve the Lord with gladness, to come into his courts with thanksgiving and praise. That's how we should serve the Lord. You know, it's a poor witness when we serve the Lord and we're grumbling and we're complaining and, 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 and we're just like, like, like we serve a terrible master or something. Gladness will always be the result, always be the result of those who serve God in Christ you know, in, in righteousness. We see the zeal of the people celebrating, again, the festival. The necessary preparation for this consisted of two things. One, cleansing the city from idolatry. Second, cleansing themselves from defilement. So the first one they carried out, that is the cleansing uh, 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 from idolatry, cleansing the city from idolatry, they did that quickly. And they did it decisively. Verse 14 says they arose. That means they got up immediately and they took away the idolatrous altars. They completely and efficiently took everything away that was not of the Lord. The incense altars that Ahaz had built in every corner of the city, they were carried out to the, to the Kidron Valley, it says. Remember where the rubbish from the temple had already been thrown in chapter 29? There had never been a cleansing of the items of idolatry like this before by any other king. Secondly, the second thing, the cleansing of themselves. Though it's not mentioned here, it's implied at least by those who belong to Judah in verses 17, verse 17 and 3. Those who were able to sanctify themselves, they sanctified themselves. But those who came from Israel hadn't done it. And Hezekiah prayed for them. And it says that the Lord listened and that the Lord answered Hezekiah's prayer in verses 17 through 20, and he healed the people. The law of the Passover was that they killed the Passover on the 14th day of the second month, according to verse 2. The heads of the families in Judah who were sanctified, they were the ones who killed their own lambs and then would put the blood in the priest's hands because they hadn't been cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. So the Levites killed the Passovers and delivered the blood into the hands of the priests, according to verse 17, and they would sprinkle the blood upon the altars. But notice the behavior of the priests and the Levites here. 
It says they sanctified themselves. The priests and the Levites weren't the ones from Jerusalem who had taken part in the dedication of the temple and of whom it is said back in 2 Chronicles 29, 34, that the Levites had been more careful about sanctifying themselves than the priests. But the whole body of the priests and Levites who had come from Judah and Israel, many of them hadn't immediately purified themselves from defilement like they should have done when they gathered at Jerusalem. The reason being, at first, they were probably half-hearted. They weren't into all of this. They weren't all stirred up like the other people. And you know what? They were probably ashamed that they didn't share in the same enthusiasm. But after watching the people in, in their excitement and their great gladness and their great joy, watching the enthusiasm of the people, the joy of the people, it, it, then they made things right. They began to perform their official duties. After, a, after sanctifying themselves, it says they performed the lawful duties that requ- were required of them in connection with their consecration. It says that they brought burnt offerings into the house of the Lord or with the Passover. Secondly, it says they brought the burnt offerings presented by the people into the house of the Lord. And it says they stood in their places after their order according to the law of Moses. And the priest then sprinkled the blood on the altar. And the Levites, for the reason explained above, handled the blood to them. Because again, the others weren't, uh, uh, you know, uh, sanctified. We see the godliness of the king here of Hezekiah in verses 18 through 20. We see his prayer. And his, his prayer was addressed to the good Lord, it says. Notice, the good Lord. And goodness is an attribute of God. His, it, 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 in, its, it's in its perfectness and character, and goodness only belongs to the Lord. His goodness is infinite, Exodus 34, 6 says. It's excellent in Psalm 36, 7. God never gets tired of, goody, of, of doing good, Psalm 33, 5. And his goodness... The psalmist said in Psalm 52, one, his goodness continues forever. Proverbs 25 says, good and upright is the Lord. Nay, uh, Psalm 34, 8 says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Nahum 1, 7 says, the Lord is good. We see it over and over again. Now, who was it that could approach the Lord? Verse 19 says, everyone that prepares his heart to seek the Lord, God of his fathers, even though they are not properly cleansed for the ceremony. Now, they approached the Lord with the right heart, yet they hadn't been cleansed for the ceremony. This means that everyone who approached God with sincerity and faithfulness, confessing that he believed in Jehovah as his rightful Lord, and, and accepting the right way of seeking God in Jerusalem, at his temple, and through the sacrificial worship appointed by God, God blessed them. Just like under the New Testament dispensation, nobody can approach God acceptably except through Jesus Christ. But we notice here, even though with imperfection and fault in what we do, it's accepted if it's done with a devoted heart. And that's what we see here. The people were not, again, uh, uh, properly cleansed for the ceremony. But it says they prepared their heart to seek the Lord. And God accepted that. The pardon of everybody who had come to the altar of God 
without complying with the law of purification was accepted by God. Now, maybe some of those people didn't know better. Maybe some of them, some of them couldn't purify themselves because of some physical ailment or disability, but it was still a violation of God's law. Just as much it was a violation for God into go into the, 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 uh, to, the, uh, to offer you know, incense to, to the God's altar. But you know what? Even though you know, it, it, it was, you know, it, God's wrath still fell on Uzziah. How did it turn out for those who weren't cleansed properly? Verse 20 says, notice, the Lord listened to Hezekiah's prayer and he healed the people anyway. You know, what's neat here is Hezekiah didn't judge the people. He prayed for them. And God had mercy on them. You know why? Because they had hearts for God. We see the king's exhortation in verse 22. Who were the re- recipients of, of, of Hezekiah's exhortation? The people. All the Levites that taught the good knowledge of the Lord who were more skilled and able to instruct others in the right way of worshiping God. What was the attitude of his exhortation? What was the spirit of his exhortation? Verse 22 says, He encouraged every heart. No doubt there were some who sang and some who, pray, who played their instruments. Some sang and some played their instruments better than others, no doubt. But you see, the king didn't treat anybody differently because of the way they sang or the way they played. He encouraged the hearts of everybody, you see, because encouragement is needed by everybody and probably even more so by those who are less skilled and yet they're doing their best. And you see, that's what God looks at. Leaders, pastors, and others sometimes forget this. And sometimes they make distinctions between the gifted and the less gifted. And when we do that, we hurt both. Because we cause the gifted to be puffed up. And the less gifted, we cause to be cast down with encouragement. We see Hezekiah's generosity. He was generous. It says he gave to the congregation 1,000 bullocks and 7,000 sheep. And, And Hezekiah's generosity was contagious. Because then the princes, it says they, the leaders, they gave the congregation a thousand bullocks and 10,000 sheep. And the king's generosity was timely. It helped the people to carry out their promise to keep the feast going for more, seven more days. And, and Hezekiah, the king's generosity was appreciated because it filled the people's hearts with gladness. And it was probably a big part of helping them knit the affections of the people together and to the king and to the leaders. So in closing, here's the lessons to be learned here. The duty of not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together to worship. We need that. Secondly, the value of unity among God's people. The psalmist said, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Acts 4.32, it says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that, that it, say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. The early church in Acts was united. That's why they were so blessed. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul said, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. 
we also see the joyous character of all true worship as part of the lessons here. We also see the acceptableness of sincere worship even when mixed with imperfection. Though the people weren't properly, properly cleansed by the requirement of law, Hezekiah prayed for them because they came to God with sincere hearts and they were accepted. And lastly, the beauty we see here, as well as the appropriateness of Christian generosity. Father, we thank you so much for these beautiful lessons, these beautiful pictures, Lord, of unity among God's people, the joy that was among God's people. Father, how you accepted the sincere worship of, of those, though some were not properly cleansed. And Father, the beauty of Christian generosity, Lord. And Father, the, the contagiousness of the King's generosity, Lord. Father, may we learn from this chapter and these examples, God. The lessons that are learned here, Lord. May we not just look at them and say, oh, how, how neat that was, but Father, may we find them in our own lives and in our own church, Lord. And God, may we be a people that dwell in unity together, God. May we dwell in generosity with each other, Lord. With gladness, God. With joy. Lord, may we appreciate one another. Because, Lord, you're our God and our Savior. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. But as you watch the unity of God's people here and the joy that resulted from them confessing their sins and from getting right with God and making things right with God, it resulted in great joy and great gladness. And you can experience the same if you will confess your sin and make Christ your Lord and your Savior you can experience the same thing. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship. If you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front. And when the song's over, we'll pray a prayer of faith together.